The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. The Scripture teaches that whenever we sin as believers, we lose our fellowship, but not our salvation. At the instant that we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, which means that He no longer operates in His sanctifying or maturing ministry in our life, so that we have to confess our sins so that we are restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can resume our spiritual advance. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer so that we can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, uh, focus our concentration on the morning's teaching of the Word so that we can uh, then uh, get rid of any distractions, uh, what may happen this afternoon or what happened during the week, so that we can focus on the teaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have this morning to come before your throne of grace. We thank you that we have this nation that guarantees our liberties, our freedom of speech, our freedom of worship, that we might gather together to study your word and to see what you have to say to us, that we might freely apply it in our own lives. Father, we continue to thank you for the fact that we have this freedom especially at this time in light of Veterans Day tomorrow. We are mindful of those who have served in the, in the armed forces of our nation, those who have been willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, those who are, uh, have been on the front lines in many cases in the preservation of our freedoms. But above all, we recognize that freedom is a matter of the soul. Freedom, real freedom, comes only from a relationship with Jesus Christ and the application of Bible doctrine. So now, Father, as we dedicate this time to the study of your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that not only would we understand them, but that we would have the courage and conviction to apply them consistently in our own lives. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
Tomorrow is Veterans Day, and we're working at establishing a tradition here at Preston City Bible Church where those who have uh, served in the uh, military, and we have a number of retirees here as well, they can still fit into their uniforms to wear their uniforms on uh, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, and the 4th of July. So we did this the first hour. And I would like uh, to have all those who have served in the armed forces at one time or another to please stand. We would like to honor you this morning because it is those of you who served in the armed forces that have given us... Go ahead, stand. Don't look around and wait for somebody else to stand up. You guys were in the military. You're supposed to have a little more initiative than that. (laughs) Because it is due to those who serve in the military and have the willingness to serve in the military who protect and preserve our freedom. So we want to recognize you and thank you for that service this morning. You may be may be seated. Every now and then when we have a holiday of this nature, I like to read something of historical significance. And this last week I, I got two emails related to the uh, bugle call TAPS, which is familiar to most who have served in the military, and many of you who have not, uh, we hear taps at, sometimes at night, calling those to go at time to turn out the lights and go to sleep, and it's also played at funerals and at military funerals. One uh, popular story that has to do with the origin of taps uh, is related to, I think, a young man in the Civil War who was killed in battle uh, he was serving in the Confederate Army, and he was killed in a battle, and his father was on the opposite side and discovered his body. And he had a piece of paper uh, in, his, in his possession with some notes on it. He was a bugler, and that was the origin of taps. But that's not true, and I was also emailed this week by a um, former classmate of mine and a colleague of mine in ROTC back in college who's now serving in the Army uh, in some capacity with an Army historical organization down at, I think, Fort Myers in Washington, D.C. And I thought this was fairly interesting background. Taps is a bugle call, and bugle calls as a call to battle can be traced back to biblical times. Armies called the various battles into 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 the assault position through the blasting of a ram's horn. Uh, the Roman armies under Caesar also made use of a trumpet. But the first documented case of a trumpet being used to order battle commands was at Bovine, France, in 1214. So that's uh, 800, uh, 800 years ago. And the trumpeter was required to have a good memory. If the wrong call were given at the wrong time, it would mean, of course, certain disaster for the soldier on the battlefield. The oldest known published trumpet call was written in 1545 at Antwerp, and it was said to have described the Battle of uh, Marinano that took place in 1515. Bugle calls were picked up by the Continental Armies of the United States during the American Revolution, and their tunes came or were direct descendants from uh, bugle calls used in the Army's of Europe. Not only did they use bugle calls to initiate commands or to convey commands, but also uh, drummers. And drums, the drummers would beat out 
the uh, a, a signal to coordinate infantry formations. And that uh, drum beat, as they beat it out, was picked up the terminology of a tattoo, which was later applied to bugle calls. Uh, initially, bugle calls were used in relationship to the cavalry, and drums were used for the infantry. Prior to the Civil War, the use of the bugle was extended to the artillery, and the infantry during that same period, though, just continued to use drum calls through the Civil War, but the bugle gradually uh, phased in into every area through the, through the Civil War. Now, the bugle calls as they are now uh, used were not developed until uh, the 1870s. Now, taps was originally called by the name Tattoo, and that name surfaced during the Thirty Years' War back in the 16th century in the 1500s. In German, it was called Zappenstreich, and this was a nightly ritual that was related, you're going to love this, that was related to placing a cork stopper back in the beer barrel to prevent late-night drainage in the local beer halls in, uh, in Germany. So when that bugle call, the tattoo was sounded, usually around 9 o'clock in the evening, it was the order for all the bartenders to put the stopper back in the barrel. So it was the Middle Ages version of last call. The root word, remember it was called the Zappenstreich, and the root word Zappen, and one, uh, several dictionaries, translates into the English word cask, or the old English word tap. So that is part of the origin of the, why we call it, why we now call it taps as opposed to, uh, tattoo. The origin of taps today, uh, the, the version today, uh, came about in the, can be traced back to 1805 from a French call and then it was later translated or transferred over into English. It was still called tattoo up through the early part of the 1800s, and it wasn't until it picked up the name Taps uh, in the middle 1800s. The bugle call, as it is, as it now sounds, remember it's gone through various modifications, uh, it has been attributed to Civil War General Daniel Butterfield. He was a graduate of Union College and a merchant in New York City when the Civil War began. His first military assignment upon enlisted was, enlistment was as a first sergeant in the Clay Guards in the District of Columbia's Volunteers. Butterfield was promoted to colonel shortly after accepting this position and was placed in command of the 12th New York Militia. Promoted to lieutenant colonel in the regular army on the 14th of May in 1861, he was later promoted to Brigadier General in command of the United States Volunteers. It was at the close of the Peninsula Campaign, the Peninsula Campaign in 1862, that he wrote the current version of TAPS. And um, he developed this bugle call in order to uh, call the men to, as the time to uh, bed down and to basically shut things down uh, for the evening. The earliest reference to the use of taps as a military funeral uh, signal dates back also to the Civil War. During a lull in the fighting, a memorial service took place for a soldier who was killed uh, in, um, 
1862. He was a member of Battery A, the second U.S. artillery, and uh, not wishing to uh, incite a renewed artillery barrage through a uh, uh, at, by by having a three-round volley, which was the traditional salute at burial, uh, a captain by the name of John Tidball, who was the commander of Battery A, had the, instead ordered the taps be played in order to render the final salute to their fallen uh, comrade. He continued that practice throughout the rest of the Civil War, and it was eventually ad- adopted through all the military services. So anyway, that gives you a little insight into the origin of taps as it's played at most military funerals. Now, let's get into our doctrine for the morning. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. Now, last time we just began our look at the first part of this verse. We just began our look at the first part of this verse, and I noted that this is a summary in 1 John, a summary to this entire epistle, and as such, John is going back and he's picking up some key ideas that are that represent the key themes in this epistle that he wants these readers to remember and that he wants to emphasize. Now, for us, we need to remember that the thrust of 1 John has to do with the spiritual life, specifically emphasizing the command to abide in Christ. First John is related to abiding in Christ as a positive command, but secondly, there is a, a, a strong correction in this epistle emphasizing the fact that the Christ that we abide in must be the Christ of Scripture and not the Christ of human imagination. And human imagination has run amok trying to define who Jesus is. I think I saw something on the news this morning that that um, uh, was a pop, Scientific American, I think it was Scientific American magazine, has a cover story now on the face of Jesus where I think they've gone through probably the Shroud of Turn and something else, tried to reconstruct what Jesus actually looked like. People just become absolutely entranced by any mention of Jesus, but the question always needs to be, what Jesus are we talking about? Just because we talk about and use the name Jesus doesn't mean you're talking about the Jesus who was described in the Scriptures. And the Jesus the Scriptures described was had his humanity born by a virgin in Bethlehem. He did not have a human father, but his was the consequence of the Holy Spirit moving on his mother so that she would, the egg that she carried was fertilized in such a way that he is born uh, not only fully human, but fully divine. We speak of the fact that he is undiminished deity and true humanity, and that these two natures are combined in the one person of Jesus Christ without mixture, where you don't have the attributes of one nature bleeding over to affect the attributes of another nature. So there has to be a correct understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, because if you're not abiding in the Jesus of 
the New Testament, then you are engaged in some sort of just simple religious activity or morality. Now, the emphasis in this whole epistle goes back to our understanding of experiential truth as evidenced in the uh, diagram on the overhead and the right circle. That right circle describes the sphere of operation of the believer in living the spiritual life. Ephesians 5.18 talks about it in terms of being filled by the Spirit. Jesus in John 15 says it is abiding in Him. Uh, Paul in Galatians 5.16 describes it as walking by the Spirit. Each of these terms, being filled, abiding, and walking, bring out different dimensions of the spiritual life, but they're all talking about walking in the light, when the believer sins, he is out of fellowship. He is no longer walking by the Spirit. He's walking in darkness. He's no longer abiding, and he is no longer being filled. So all of these things work together. Now, as we look at that circle, the the white circle there, that colored it white to in, and bring out the idea of walking in the light, we have to ask ourselves, How do we stay walking by the Spirit? How do we continue to abide in Him? How do we continue being filled? Because constantly we are being tempted by our own sin nature to handle the problems in life, the circumstances in life, through our own efforts under the, uh, under the power of the sin nature, as opposed to being, as opposed to abiding in Him or walking by the sin nature. And this is the function of the problem-solving devices as we have talked about them, especially uh, as we have discussed them as spiritual skills. Each of these are designed to handle certain situations, certain problems, certain adversities in life, whether they happen to be uh, testing or temptation by the sin nature, whether it happens to be a system test, whether it happens to be a people test, whether it happens to be a thought test, whatever the arena may come on, whatever the situation may involve, one or more of these skills are are utilized in order to handle the situation and stay in fellowship. Almost every time you have a decision to make in life, ultimately you can reduce that decision to application of doctrine or application of human viewpoint. Now, you may not always understand it. Sometimes things may be more subtle than at other times. But almost every situation in life, every decision involves a decision of doing, of applying doctrine and living life in the light of divine viewpoint or living light on the basis of our own energy, our own effort, our own ability, our own uh, human viewpoint thinking. These skills are designed to keep us abiding in Christ. While we are walking by the Spirit, we are utilizing these skills. We are walking by the Holy Spirit. Confession is the first of the stress, confession is the first of the stress busters because that is how we recover the filling of the Spirit. That is how we are restored from not abiding to abiding. That is how we move from walking according to the sin nature to walking by the Holy Spirit. Then we apply the second problem-solving device, which is to continue walking by the Spirit and to be filled by the Holy Spirit, which is learning Bible doctrine and applying it. 
Then we move on to the faith rest drill where we are actively trusting in the promises of God, uh, living our life according to grace. That's the fourth stress buster, grace orientation. Fifth stress buster is orienting our thinking to Bible doctrine, doctrinal orientation. Fifth stress, bu- uh, the sixth stress buster is our personal sense of our eternal destiny where we move from spiritual infancy and the basic spiritual skills to uh, spiritual adolescence where we begin to live today in light of eternity. Then the last four across the bottom of the screen are the advanced or adult spiritual skills. Not that you can't implement them to some degree as a young believer or an immature believer, but you will not get them fully and completely in place where they are fully developed in your character until you reach spiritual maturity. And those are personal love for God the Father, impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and then sharing the happiness of Christ. What happens is when we are applying these principles, then we continue to walk in the light. Whenever a situation comes up, we have a choice. Am I going to handle it on the basis of grace and maybe on the basis of impersonal love, or am I going to handle it through some sort of mental attitude, sin, reaction, anger, bitterness, jealousy, whatever it might be? If we are positive and apply doctrine, we continue to walk in the light. We continue to abide in Christ. We continue to walk by the Spirit. If we choose to handle it on our own, walk by the flesh, then we're immediately out of fellowship and we have to confess and get back in fellowship and move forward. We have to stay in the light, and the emphasis there is on abiding in Christ because only when we stay there utilizing these problem-solving devices or these spiritual skills does the Holy Spirit produce maturity in our life. When we stay there, Applying doctrine, then God the Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes, producing spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. So the issue then becomes your volition, whether or not you are going to choose to apply doctrine or choose to handle life situations on your own. Now, we come to verse 18. Came there last time. We began with the statement, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, I want you to notice that many of you will get there eventually this morning, but many of you are saying, wait a minute, there's a difference there. My New American Standard said keeps him, not keeps himself. So there is a textual problem that we'll look at when we get there, and the King James and the New King James Version has himself, whereas most of the modern translations such as NIV, New American Standard Version, and many of the others have keeps him, so we'll have to address that, but I think that himself is attested in more uh, ancient documents than not, and so it should be read, the one who has been born of God uh, keeps himself, and the wicked one uh, does not touch him. The wicked one does not touch him. Now, I noted last time that if you look at verse 18, 19, and 20, they all begin with the phrase, we know. Now, I know that some of you are, some of you are new, some of you are new to the church, some of you are new believers, but you should not be afraid to mark in your Bible and to make notes in your Bible. And one of the things that you should do here is whenever the Holy Spirit repeats something, it's worth 
noting. And we have a threefold repetition of this phrase, we know. So you should circle that phrase in each of those verses and then draw a line in between connecting them so that the next time you look at these verses, that will uh, jog something in your in your memory. Now, the phrase we know, as I studied last time, is a perfect active indicative of the verb oida. Now, oida, there are two basic verbs for knowledge in Greek, oida and gnosko. And gnosko generally emphasizes the act of perception, and oida emphasizes a more or less intuitive knowledge. Now, this is not talking about the fact that you sort of intuitively know these principles. Once, But once something has been taught, once you have believed it and stored it in your soul, once that doctrine is in your soul and in your frame of reference, then when it is recalled by the Holy Spirit, that is an intuitive knowledge, and that's what's being emphasized here. We have a chart here that is important for understanding the mechanics or structure of learning. The circle on the overhead represents the thinking part of the soul. And the Bible, uh, the New Testament especially, uses two words to describe the center of thought in the soul. The first is called the noose, which is just the general area where thought, where intellection takes place. And then there's an inner area of the noose called the heart or cardia. We use the term heart to refer uh, to things like this all the time. We talk about the heart of a matter. That's the core or the center of an issue. We talk about the heart of a tree. We're talking about the center part of a tree. So the term heart as a metaphor frequently describes the center of something. So in the Bible, it frequently describes the center of our thinking where uh, our basic, our core beliefs are stored. Now the process of teach, in the process of teaching, the pastor teacher communicates the Word of God and the Holy Spirit who is filling us when we're in fellowship. This is part of the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. He makes the Word of God understandable. He doesn't understand it for us, but He makes it understandable. Remember, the unbeliever can't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Only a believer can understand them, and when he is in fellowship, then the Holy Spirit makes it understandable, but that doesn't mean you don't have to think about it. That doesn't mean you go into some sort of mental passive uh, position where uh, you're just kind of zapped by this information, and as long as you uh, memorize a chart or memorize uh, how a pastor communicates the word, that you understand it. Just because you can regurgitate what I say doesn't mean you understand it any more than regurgitation of anything on an examination means you understand it. And you all know that from when you passed your chemistry or algebra exams in high school. You may or may not have understood what you were writing, but you regurgitated what you were writing well enough to at least pass the test, or at least hopefully pass the test. So the Holy Spirit makes it understandable. We exercise our volition to accept it or to, to believe it, to understand it, and when we understand it, it becomes gnosis. This is a basic concept in Scripture for academic knowledge. For anything has to become academic knowledge before it can ever become usable knowledge. Throughout my life, you always hear somebody who uh, has a problem with intensive study of the word. They think, well, we just know too much. You know, if we just, if we applied more of what we knew, 
then we would be a lot better. There's just too much emphasis on teaching, 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 learning, learning. There needs to be more emphasis on application. Well, let me suggest that people who say that are just very superficial and shallow and have never thought about how you learn anything in any field. If you think about whatever field it is of study that you majored in in college or that you're very interested in, maybe it's a hobby or something, you probably know uh, 20 or 30 times more information about that than you actually use whether it's cooking, whether it's uh, auto mechanics, whether it's construction, whether it's chemistry or algebra, we always know a tremendous amount more than we ever use. And that is the way all learning operates. We always have a vast amount that forms sort of a foundation from which we only use a small percentage. So it is important for us to learn the entire realm of doctrine because it all fits together and reinforces everything. You can't understand any part of the Word of God without having some comprehension of the entirety of the Word of God because every part of the Word of God relates to every other part of the Word of God. Remember, the Word of God is the mind of Christ. Therefore, when you are looking at anything in the Scripture, whether it's in First John or First Chronicles, it is saying something about the thought processes and the thinking and planning of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it all relates in His mind in one way or another. And so for us to come, come as many Christians do, well, I just need to study this part of Scripture and not that part of Scripture, we're saying only part of the thinking of God is worth knowing. We have to know all of it because at some level it all relates together, and even though it may not be applicable today or tomorrow or even next year, and maybe it's not even a point of, of doctrine that has direct application in life, it will form foundations for other doctrines that do have direct application in life. So there are times when we may get into some rather uh, abstract things or may seem to be rather abstract to you, but they are all important for forming this academic knowledge foundation and framework from which all application must come. So we have to understand it when we exercise our volition to think about it, to meditate on it, to understand it. It becomes academic knowledge. Then we have to utilize our volition a a second time, whether we believe it or not. If we believe it, then God the Holy Spirit transfers it into the innermost part of the thinking of our soul, the cardia, and there it becomes uh, epinosis or usable spiritual knowledge. At that point, it merely is potential use, and we have to exercise our volition again to apply it. So there's three stages where we utilize our volition. Now, this is what John emphasizes here, is that you know something, and he refers back, and he mentions this kind of knowledge many times in First John. And we covered many of these verses last time, and I'm not going to go over them again, but the first use goes back to First John 2, 20 and 21, where he relates it to the anointing from the Holy Spirit, which we said is John's terminology that is related to Paul's use of the filling of the Spirit. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. 
I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and know lies of the truth. He's emphasizing the fact that these things were taught to them when he was there as their pastor again and again, so it is information that is stored in their soul. It should be epinosis doctrine in their heart, and now it is time for them to pull out, pull that information out. Because it's epinosis knowledge, it's, it's intuitive, it should be second nature to them, and they should be applying it. Now, this relates to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we will, uh, which I talked about last time in terms of the Council of Chalcedon, where the, uh, which was the final creed in the development of the early church's understanding of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that was the basic problem here in, uh, 1 John, is who was Jesus Christ? We'll see this emphasized again in verse 20. It was still a problem throughout the first five centuries of Christianity coming up with a clear understanding of the hypostatic union. Now, if any of you have sat down and spent a couple of hours trying to really understand what it means for a person, for, for one individual to be fully God and fully man, for those two natures not to mix, for those two natures to be fully present and operational, for those two natures to be united so you have one person and not a sort of a split personality or multiple personality type scenario. If you've ever spent the day meditating on that, you'll realize this is not something that is easy to understand. And the scriptures themselves don't give us the technical vocabulary that was developed later on. The vocabulary that we use is the hypostatic union or the union of two uh, natures, hypostases, in one person. And that came out of this whole what's called a Christological controversy that began with the teaching of Arius, who taught that there was a time when Christ was not, that he wasn't eternal. He was just sort of a, a, a a creation of God back in eternity past. That was resolved at the Council of Nicaea in 325, but it continued to be a controversy until it reached a final statement at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. And I'm going to read that to you one more time. There they formulated it this way. Following the Holy Fathers, that is, the early apostles, We confess with one voice that the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is perfect in Godhead and perfect in manhood. Key phrase. Perfect in Godhead, perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. By that terminology they meant he is undiminished deity and true humanity. That he is of one substance, that is the unity. See, you have Godhead and manhood, that's two separate Two separate natures, one substance means one person, the hypostasis, the hypostatic union. With the Father, he is also of one substance with us as man. He is like us in all things without sin. This one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, is made known in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the natures is in no way taken away by their union, but rather the distinctive properties of each nature are preserved. That is, they are not mixed. So there is your foundational definition. Now, this is really the, the, an underlying issue in 1 John, that if you don't have this Christ 
as the focus of your attention in the spiritual life, then you don't have a real spiritual life. Because it is this Jesus who is fully God and fully man who sets the precedent for the Christian life. Now, that that Christ is the image. Now, let me put something together for you. We've studied this a lot. I want to try to pull a couple of things back together for you. We've talked about the fact that in Genesis 1, 26, 27, man is created in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 3, that image, that image is marred or distorted because of sin. But it's still there. When you get to Genesis chapter 9, the, the basis for capital punishment is because man is in the image of God. So it's not lost. It's not eradicated. It's still there. Then you come to Romans 8, uh, uh, 28 and 29, and we're being uh, conformed uh, to his image. In Romans 8, uh, 28 to 30, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. So the image is distorted at the fall, but at salvation, in a sense, it's, it's recovered, and through, this, through spiritual growth, we are being conformed to that image. Now, this is the same terminology that Paul is going to use in, relation, in a couple of verses. I think I dropped... What happened to him? Well, I somehow lost those verses in the presentation. Okay, Ephesians 4.24. Ephesians 4.24. Don't just ignore what I'm playing with up here on the screen. We're just going to get back to... um, where we were. Ephesians 4.24, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. At the instant of salvation, we become a new creature. There is a new man that is created according to God. This is part of us. We have this new nature which is created according to the image of Jesus Christ. Now that new nature that we receive at the instant of salvation is not capable of sin. Uh, it was created in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, verse 10, Paul says, And we put on the new man who is renewed by means of knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So again, we pick up this image terminology in relationship to the spiritual life. This image terminology is related to the new creature that is created in us at the instant of salvation. Now, don't get the idea that this is some sort of multiple personality scenario. This is nothing different from the fact that you are a new creature in Christ with a new identity, but the old man is still there. That is everything, every uh, thing that we were before we were saved and governed by the sin, governed by the sin nature. And the issue is whether you're going to live consistently with the old man according to the sin nature, or with the new man who is this new image who is being renewed and by means of knowledge according to the image, that is according to the standard of his image, which is an image of perfection. So at that instant of salvation, we're a new creature, 
We're a new man. We are create, we are inside the soul fortress. But as soon as we sin, we we leave. We're ejected. We're outside of the right circle, outside of the soul fortress, and we're no longer abiding in Christ, walking or advancing. Now that's important to understand uh, that whole concept if we're going to understand the rest of this verse. First John 3.18, we know, in other words, John is saying, look, you've been taught this again and again and again, just as I have taught you this again and again and again. This should be epinosis knowledge in your soul by now. That, and then he uses a construction in the Greek, uses a particle called, uh, it's called hati, and it's how the Greeks introduced a, a, a principle. We know something. We know colon. Whoever is born of God does not sin. Whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, what in the world does that mean? See, if you take that at at its surface meaning, it looks as if John is saying, whoever is truly regenerated, whoever is truly saved, doesn't sin. Now, there have been a number of ways that people have tried to get around this particular problem. One way they've tried to get around this problem is by saying, well, what that means is that whoever is born of God doesn't continuously sin. But see, the Greek doesn't, will not permit that kind of a use. It's not that whoever is born of God does not continuously sin. See, the indication there would be that if you're really regenerated, you're not going to continue in certain sins. And that's really the hidden subtext is that there are certain sins you won't continue to commit, and then you always say, well, what sins are those? And then you discover that everybody's got their little pet list of sins that they don't like, and they're almost always some kind of overt sins related to usually some sort of sexual sin, adultery, immorality, uh, sodomy, whatever it might be, or or murder, and I'll never forget uh, when I was a I had a long-running argument when I was about 8 or 10 years old with a, a girl that lived down the street, and she kept arguing that, well, if you commit murder, you can't go to heaven. And I said, well, then David's not going to be in heaven. So I was arguing theology even when I was 8 years old. You always have to be out there interacting with people around you. You can't let them get away with heresy. You just don't allow it. So anyhow, the, people always have some hidden subtle subtext that they don't mention there and what they mean is that oh well if you if you're really regenerate there're just certain sins you don't commit that's not what it says what the text says is whoever is born of god doesn't sin doesn't commit mental attitude sins doesn't commit overt sins doesn't commit sins of the tongue period of course we all look at each other and we say well how can that be because we're all saved we've all trusted Christ, but we still sin. So obviously there's something going on here in this verse that goes beyond its surface meaning. And in order to understand that, we have to understand what John says and what John means by certain terms. So we have to look back to a couple of key verses. For example, 1 John chapter 3, verses 6, 8, and 9. If we don't understand these verses, we can't understand uh, three eight, uh, or excuse me, five eighteen. In First John three six, John says almost the same thing. There he says, "Whoever abides in Him does not sin." 
Same thing. And you have the same problem, and when I went through 1 John 3, 6, we discussed this as well, that there are those who try to evade the clear meaning of this passage by translating it, whoever abides in him doesn't continue in sin. Or there are some who will, what they're really saying is whoever abides in him doesn't commit certain kinds of sin. But that's not what John is saying. He says whoever abides in him doesn't sin. Now that brings up a totally different problem. And that is, what does it mean to abide? And you have to realize there are some people who think that abide is equivalent to belief, and whoever is a believer abides, that they're actually synonymous. But I have demonstrated again and again, and I don't want to take the time to do so this morning, that abide is not equivalent to belief. Abide has to do with our ongoing relationship with Christ, not our entry into Salvation. So a person can be a believer and not abide. Okay, so we still have a problem. I'm a believer. I'm abiding in him. It says whoever abides in him doesn't sin. Well, that can make sense because abiding in him is in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, and that's clear from uh, Galatians 5.16 that we are to walk by means of the Spirit. And the promise is that if we walk by means of the Spirit, we will not bring to completion the deeds of the flesh. So what Paul is saying is as long as you're walking by the Spirit, you're not going to bring to completion the deeds of the sin nature. You're not going to sin as long as you're walking by the Spirit. In other words, as long as you stay inside that right circle, walking in the light, you can't sin. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians 5. That's no different from what John says in 1 John 3, 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. So let's put it on the overhead this way. If you abide, put abide in this column, then you do not sin. Let's see if I have any. Uh, that's a little better. That pen's a little better. Okay, if you abide in, abide in Christ, you, you do not sin. That's the first part of 1 John 3, 6. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. That's the second part of the verse. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, what does that mean? See, then we enter into the second problem we addressed, and that is that in our very loose evangelical verbiage, we frequently use the phrase knowing Christ as an equivalent to salvation. Brother, do you know Jesus? In other words, we're asking somebody if they're saved, but that comes out of sloppy revivalism, which just picked up all kinds of loose terminology that sounds biblical but isn't, and when you get done saying it, you really ought to be scratching your heads. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Bible doesn't use the phrase knowing Jesus as an equivalent to salvation. And I talked about the illustration of Philip in, in, in John chapter 14, where Jesus said to Philip, who was already saved by that time, Philip, if you had known me, you would understand what I am telling you. So Philip is saved in John 14, but he doesn't know Jesus. So you can be saved and not know Jesus, because this isn't talking about awareness of the gospel. 
It's not talking about understanding the gospel. It's not talking about accepting the gospel. It's talking about moving beyond simple salvation to spiritual adulthood where you really know and understand what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. So here John is saying, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. In other words, when you're sinning, you are not acting as if you know him. That's really what he's saying here. You're not abiding. We have to coordinate these two phrases. Abiding equals fellowship. When we're out of fellowship, we're acting as if we don't have any information about Jesus and we don't know how to apply the the, uh, spiritual skills which he pioneered. So... Verse 6 says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So when we sin, we are not living in light of that relationship with Jesus. That's the emphasis here in terms of seeing or knowing him has to do with an active relationship. So when we're out of fellowship, there's no relationship. We're saved, but there's no ongoing rapport with Jesus. Then we get to verse 8. There, John says, he who sins is of the devil. And I want you to watch that phrase, of the devil. It is simply a genitive of the word diabolos, a genitive of the devil. And it's so typical of us that we think of of the devil as being, well, you're not saved. But remember, he just got through saying that you can sin as a believer and that just means you're not abiding. So when you sin, you're not abiding, but you're acting like a child of the devil. You're acting like someone who is you're being influenced by the satanic system or the world system. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Then in verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. See, that's the same thing. Same phrase that we have in verse 18 of chapter 5. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. So now we have this terminology. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Now notice the parallel. In verse 6, the person who abides doesn't sin. In verse Nine, the person who is born of God does not sin. That must mean that in John's thinking at this point, he is equating abiding with being born of God. He is not using the term being born of God as a simple term for just salvation, but somebody who has been saved and is living in light of that new birth, that new position. He's living in light of his being a new creature in Christ. He says, let's take this apart again, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Now he's going to explain it. In the English you have that word for. But in the Greek it's the a word I referred to a minute ago that has several different uses. Here it is the Greek word hati, H-O-T-I, hati, and this is a causal sense of the word. A causal sense. So what happens is, in this last phrase, he is giving the reason for the previous statement. Whoever has been born of God does not sin because his seed abides in him. See, don't just stop at the comma there. Whoever has been born of God doesn't sin. Complete the thought. 
Whoever has been born of God doesn't sin because his seed abides in him. Now notice, in verse 6, the person who abides doesn't sin. In verse 9, the person born of God does not sin because his seed abides in him. So it takes us right back to the concept of abiding. It takes us right back to the concept of abiding. Is that going to work? We'll see if a dry erase. That works a little better. Okay. The the causal statement relates the concept of being born of God right back to the verb abide and our concept of fellowship. So verse 9 of chapter 3 says, Whoever has been born of God doesn't sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. That's a strong statement. It can't be talking about being a believer. Because if he's talking about simply being saved... Then you run a contradiction with 1 John 1.8, which states that the believer who doesn't admit sin is self-deceived. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We don't have a relationship with the truth. So we have two options here. Either we can say that John just contradicts himself. He can't remember what he wrote just two chapters earlier. You know, we have to give the man some credit that he at least understood what he was trying to communicate and he's not contradicting him, contradicting himself. So we must make an assumption in favor of the author that he's, there's not a contradiction here. And since he makes it clear in verse 8 that believers do sin and can habitually sin, then what he is saying in, in 1 John chapter 3 must go beyond simply being regenerate. It must be talking about the person who is regenerate and what that regenerate nature is capable of. And that goes, that's why I brought in the two passages earlier from Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10, that there is this new nature created in the individual at salvation, and that new nature can't sin. When we're abiding in Christ, it's that new nature that's operational, and it can't sin. But as soon as we decide to walk according to the flesh then that new nature is shut down, the operation of the Holy Spirit in relationship to this, our being a new creature is shut down, and we sin. So John is reminding them that we know, that is, you've been taught this again and again and again, that that which is born of God, your new nature as a believer, doesn't sin. He's not saying you can't sin. He's not saying that you don't get out of fellowship, but he's saying that in your new person, the new creature in Christ, you don't sin. And then he makes a second statement, and notice it's a contrast. It's a contrast. You have uh, the preposition Allah, but, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. See, he's, and here we have a a tremendous uh, interpretational problem. The debate is, what does it mean the one who keeps, the one who was born of God keeps himself? 
And the NIV, it translates it, the one who is born of God keeps him safe. And the identity of the one who was born of God isn't clear. Many scholars will argue that on, on the basis of, of, of context and the basis of a few, two or three Greek manuscripts, that he who has been born of God, because it shifts from a perfect tense to an aorist tense, is no longer referring to the believer, but is referring to Jesus Christ. And in uh, the way your New American Standard, New International Version, other modern translations handle that second clause, they will capitalize the he, and it will be, but he who has been born of God uh, keeps him. And that is, and, and they would interpret that to mean that whoever is born of God doesn't sin, but Jesus Christ, that is he who is born of God in terms of the incarnation, is the one who keeps the believer. Now that's a true doctrine. We see that in many, many places it's taught in scripture that Jesus Christ keeps the believer. Passages such as John 17, 12, 1 Peter 1, 5, Jude 24, Revelation 3, 10, all indicate that the believer is kept and his salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question is, is that what this passage is saying? And as one commentator writes, he says, he, he makes the comment that if this were talking about a believer instead of Jesus Christ, then we would find in the text a reflexive pronoun. And then he has a little footnote, and he notes that, yeah, well, gee, in a majority of manuscripts, there is a reflexive pronoun. That's where you get into a lot of issues. They're too abstruse to cover in Sunday morning on differences in how you handle textual discrepancies in the ancient manuscripts. And I believe that in, in what's called the majority text view for the most part, uh, that the majority text manuscripts indicate a slightly different reading that makes more sense in the context that he who has been born of God, that is the believer, keeps himself. He keeps himself in fellowship. He keeps himself uh, walking in the light. He keeps himself walking by the Holy Spirit because he continues to exercise positive volition. And then we have a second clause, and that's the last clause of the verse, and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, I want you to notice, this is just a subtle little point of grammar. We have three clauses in this verse. The first clause is, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. We have a second clause, he who has been born of God keeps himself. Those two clauses are linked by a contrastive conjunction, but. You could underline or circle the but. That's going to contrast the first clause with the second clause. And then there's a third statement, and the wicked one does not touch him. That is connected to the first two clauses by the word and, which is a coordinating conjunction. Now, the reason this is important is no matter how you handle the textual problem, the first two contrastive, contrastive clauses are talking about one thing. The last clause the wicked one doesn't touch him, is a second idea equal in weight to the idea of the first two clauses. If you were to break this down into a... Now, I'm really going to lose some of you. If you were to break this down into a mathematical formula, 
it would look like this, A plus B, and you'd put A plus B in parentheses. These are the first two clauses, A plus B, and they are put in parentheses because they relate to the same idea. But then he's going, the author adds another completely independent idea, C. C is not related to A plus B. It is an independent idea. It is an also, it is of equal weight to the first two clauses. And so he is just adding, as part of his summary here, another idea, and that is that the wicked one does not touch the believer. He is not saying the wicked one does not touch the believer who's in fellowship. He's saying the wicked one does not touch the believer. Now, the word here translated touch is the Greek word hapto, H-A-P-T-O, H-A-P-T-O, which literally means to touch. It's the same word we had in 1 Corinthians 7.1 for touching in terms of uh, sexual intimacy. But here it has a different context. It's the same word used uh, that used to describe Jesus touching uh, the leper, touching the blind man, and healing them. So the word in and of itself uh, is not a word that indicates anything more than simple contact. But context indicates what the contact is, whether it's pleasurable or whether it's harmful. And the context here related to the wicked one, that is Satan, indicates harm. That is, the evil one is not allowed on the basis of this verse to touch or do harm to the believer. Now, that's a strong argument for why Christians cannot be demon-possessed, that you can be attacked to a certain degree externally by demons and Satan in one sense or another through temptation, adversity, and we can go to uh, the Old Testament book of Job in order to see how, how Satan is allowed to uh, test Job and to bring even physical disease on Job at, one, at some point. But he is not allowed to indwell or destroy Job's soul or anything or to destroy his spiritual life. So what this is saying is that, on the one hand, whoever is born of God doesn't sin. Why? Because he's born of God, he has this new nature. The one who has been born of God keeps himself. And because he's been born of God and he has this new nature, the wicked one, Satan, can't touch him. So there is an emphasis here on the eternal security of the believer and the fact that there is only so much that the that Satan can do in terms of the angelic conflict and his assault on believers. So that covers verse 19 and with the introduction verse 18 and with the introduction of the wicked one or Satan at the end of the verse, it is a natural development to go into the next to what what John is going to remind them of in the next verse. In verse 19 he says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now what does he mean when he makes that statement? This is our second we know, and it's the same kind of construction that we have in the first verse. Uh, We know that. We know hati. That is, we know, if we were to translate this, one way we could punctuate it is we know colon. We are of God, and the whole world lies lies 
of the wicked one. The whole world it lies, actually, or is under the control of the wicked one, and this brings in the whole concept of the cosmic system and the and worldliness, which is a major theme in John. Just turn back with me to First John chapter two, verse fifteen, where John says, "Do not love the world or the things." In the world, if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Now remember, only in spiritual adulthood do we have a mature love for God the Father. And what John is saying here, remember he's addressing the young men. Verse 14b, I have written to you young men. He's addressing the spiritual adolescents. And he is telling them specifically that as part of spiritual adolescence, the issue when it comes to advancing from spiritual adolescence to spiritual adulthood, the primary issue is learning to get rid of human viewpoint and pagan thought, not being attracted to cosmic thinking, not being attracted to various systems of thinking in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And that is a subtle form of idolatry. We're not going to have time to get there this morning, but I want to set things up for where we're going to get next Sunday. Next Sunday we should finish this epistle. The last verse says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. When has John spoken of idolatry in this entire entire epistle? He hasn't. What's he talking about when he gets to idolatry? Well, we're going to see more of it in verse 20, but he's moving there even as early as, as verse 19. You see, the word idol, when it's used in the New Testament, never refers to a metal, earthen, or clay figure like you have in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, idols are associated with the, with the fertility religions and with concrete idols. But when you get into the New Testament, idolatry is associated with uh, mental images of God that are false or substituting something in the place of the worship of God. It is more abstract than in the Old Testament. For example, in Colossians, uh, Paul says that greed or covetousness is idolatry because you are putting money ahead of the priority of worshiping God and applying doctrine. So what happens in cosmic thinking is that some other element in the creation, whether it has to do with a value system, whether it has to do with your own false understanding of God, and you're worshiping a false understanding of God, whether it has to do with a false understanding of who Jesus Christ is, and remember that's the issue with the false teachers here, or whether it has to do with taking any element of cosmic thinking and elevating it to a position of priority, that's idolatry. That's why we're told not to love the world, but because, because when you operate on human viewpoint standards and human viewpoint priorities, that is idolatry. You are supplanting God and biblical priorities and divine viewpoint with human viewpoint and pagan systems of thinking, pagan priorities, and that is idolatry. So Paul is beginning to foreshadow and set up, set us up for that final statement, even as early as verse 20, where he says, 
excuse me, verse 19, where he says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the wicked one, under the, under the devil. That is talking about the devil as the author of all cosmic thinking, and the devil is the author of all religions. Christianity, remember, by definition is not a religion. It, religion means that you're trying to find some way to gain God's approval through ritual, through works, through behavior, through uh, some form of human endeavor. But Christianity emphasizes a relationship based on what Jesus Christ did and not based on who we are. So Satan is the author of all religions. He's the author of Islam. Satan is the author of Mormonism. Satan is the author of Jehovah's Witnesses. Satan is the author of Buddhism. Satan is the author of every single world religion and philosophical system that stands in contrast to the Word of God. And the mandate that Paul gave is that we are to be uh, that we are to be tearing down these fortresses, these thought fortresses, as part of spiritual growth. So Paul says, I mean John says in verse 19, we know that we are of God. We as believers are of God, not simply because we are saved. Remember the contrast here is between uh, the believer who is operating as a believer in his nature and the believer who is operating like a child of the devil. We have to understand the, the genitive of God in the same way we understand the genitive of the devil and back in 1 John 3, 8, which I mentioned earlier, that the believer can operate of the devil because when he's living in carnality. He doesn't look any different from an unbeliever. And the believer that is operating on the basis of the Holy Spirit is operating as a child of God, consistent with his new nature. So we know that we are of God in terms of our new nature, and in contrast, the world, the cosmic system, is under the wicked one. That is, Satan is the author of the cosmic system. So the contrast there, again, is that the believer who is spiritual, the believer who is walking by the Spirit, the believer who is abiding in Christ, the believer who is walking in the light, cannot be operating on principles of worldliness. Now, as you grow and advance in your spiritual life from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood, you're going to learn more and more what worldliness is. You know, when you first start off as a new believer, you know, it's just a very general category. But the more you study, the more you learn, the more you realize that this is going to incorporate all kinds of human viewpoint systems of thought, from Darwinism to Marxism, any various forms of socialism, uh, other forms of religious systems and psychology and all of these other things are all part of the cosmic system. So when you're a believer and you're operating on that type of thinking, then that means you're out of fellowship and you're walking under the power of the flesh. And that's in contrast to the new nature of the believer that needs to be operating according to the mind of Christ, because as I emphasized in Colossians 3.10, we are renewed according to knowledge, or by means of the knowledge of Him. So we are exchanging human viewpoint knowledge, which is inculcated into us from birth, and no matter what culture you're in, with divine viewpoint knowledge, which is in the Word of God. And that is why, that, that, that when you understand that, it is going to 
radically change your whole concept of why you come to church. You don't come to church to feel good. You don't come to church to socialize with other people. You don't come to church because you need to bring your kids there so they'll learn some values and learn some good things about the Bible. You don't come to church for any of the reasons that 99% of the people in this country go to church. You come to church in order to learn how God thinks and so that you can develop a, a critical thinking ability in your soul based on the objective truth of the Word of God so that you can begin to look at, evaluate, and critically think about everything in life from, from, from politics to shopping on the basis of the absolute values of the Word of God. And when you re- realize that, you begin to realize that showing up on Sunday morning doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. In fact, showing up Sunday morning, Wednesday night hardly does it. But I'm committed to the principle that just as family is a divine institution, it's important that the church not get in the way of the family. And that happens in some churches. They expect you to be a Bible class five or six nights a week. And when do you have time for family interaction when you're always a Bible class? Well, you don't. So there has to be a balance there. Now, we have a lot of tapes. We have tapes going back five years here. And many of those tapes you can listen to three or four times. And you're still not going to fully comprehend everything that's in those tapes. So that's why I emphasize we may not have Bible class more than three times a week, but that doesn't mean you can't be listening to those tapes and you can't be renewing your thinking uh, every day and adjusting your own schedule to tapes and still allowing for family time. By the way, those of you who weren't here on Wednesday night, one announcement, and that is that Wednesday night Bible class on the 25th of December, Christmas, and on the 1st of January, New Year's, is, is canceled. And part of the reason for that is Christmas and New Year's are family times, and that is important. We're making a statement there. It's not just a matter of convenience. It's not simply because if you have Bible class on Wednesday night, probably half the people won't show up because they're with their families, but because you should be with your family at that time. We, you don't want to create uh, an antithesis or competition between Bible class and family. Family is important. If believers aren't spending family time together communicating, then how do you build a strong family dynamic as a divine institution that is part of the stability of a nation? So you have to do both. You don't create those those competitions. Well, with verse 19, we finish up the second we know of the conclusion. And next time we'll wrap up 1 John 5 when we look at the third we know, which takes us right back to understanding who and what Jesus Christ is in the hypostatic union. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this opportunity to be challenged by the objective truth of your word, this opportunity to exchange the uh, human viewpoint in our soul with the divine viewpoint of your absolute truth. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to... Decide what you are trusting in for your eternal salvation. If you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then you have eternal life. At the instant of your faith alone in Christ alone, you're regenerated. You're a new creature in Christ, and that can never be changed. That can never be taken from you. 
right now, right where you sit, you have an opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. You don't need to make a bargain with God. You don't need to renovate your life. You don't need to reform your morals. You don't need to join a church, engage in ritual, or any other human practice. You simply decide what you are trusting for eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would help the rest of us to understand the things that we've studied today, that we might be challenged to think biblically, to think with your viewpoint, to think about life as you have revealed it to us in your word. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.